0: <laughs> well that's what I was going to do some notes last week but I didn't have time so <laughs> Oh <laughs> Yeah um, I don't know what that translates to Maybe it's the four you would sometimes refer to as the four senses of scripture, but I don't don't like to use that terminology because like that in like medieval Catholic thought, the idea was maybe, but the the idea was that like scripture had like multiple meanings and all this stuff and like it doesn't, (laughs) it's kind of, but yes. That's what William William Whitaker, who wrote like the. It's like an 800 page book about Sola Scriptura. He argued that everything has one meaning, but it's just aspects of the one meaning of Scripture. So it's four different angles to look at Scripture. Versus. He said a bunch of other stuff, too. (laughs) He's also a Puritan, though. They're wordy. (laughs) But. are you ready? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I, I, meant to put a picture of one on the back of this, and I forgot. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's what it. It would be helpful to do that. There's somewhere, there's a museum somewhere. I don't think it's the Creation Museum in Kentucky, but there's a museum somewhere that has, maybe. But there's a like a full-size tabernacle for you to, this is a slow come upstairs, so I'm just, I know there are a couple more people downstairs, but we're going to go ahead and pray and um, get started. So um, I'm waiting on Jim to... I assume he's, he's done it already, but that's why I take that big pause. <laughs> so let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for the day you've given us to come and to study your word. Um, and thank you for your law. You've given us um, these scriptures that may seem mysterious and far off and confusing, but uh, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, uh, that by your Spirit you reveal uh, these things to us, even though by our own power we can't understand them. Um, and so, Father, we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit tonight. Would you illuminate the scriptures for us? And give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word um, for us tonight. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I'm roughly dividing this into—we're doing this for five weeks. So I'm roughly dividing it into we're approaching each book of the Bible. But there's no way that I'm going to, like, hit everything um, in time. And also— Remember that these are kind of one literary unit, Genesis through Deuteronomy, kind of all hangs together. So we're going to look at tonight this instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 to 32. But, and you'll notice this a lot in um, the Torah, there'll be a section of instruction, and then there'll be a section where it's actually done. And so the section of instruction in Exodus is all in Exodus. But when they start building the tabernacle and putting things together and consecrating priests and everything, that extends into Leviticus. And kind of the two marker points for that is, and we'll talk about the golden calf tonight. So the golden calf is a marker point for a um, divider. And then there's another divider with Nadab and Abihu, who remember they brought strange fire um, before God. So, but that's in like several chapters into Leviticus. And so those are two marking points. So we're going to look at the section after the Book of the Covenant, which is right after the Ten Commandments. You have the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The Book of the Covenant from Exodus 21 to 23 is some, it's an exposition of the Ten Commandments. And so there's laws about um, slaves and um, that's kind of the, the big thing that people pick up on there. But then we come to the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 32. But before I talk about the tabernacle, We need to talk about creation again, because creation, like we said last week, is one of these motifs and themes that recurs throughout the Old Testament. And so I made reference to this structure, but you'll see this on your notes. I've got three different episodes in scripture here. And I made reference to the structure last week. Um, But here it is in front of you, and this, this should become a little bit clearer now that you see it. So God creates in six days. In Genesis 1, the earth is described as formless and void. Or formless and empty. And so what God does over the six days is the first three days, he forms things. The second three days, he fills them. So he takes this formless thing and forms it. And he takes this empty thing and fills it. So, you have three days of forming and three days of filling. The first day he divides light from dark. The second day he divides the waters above, which means the sky from the waters below. The third day he divides the land and the sea. And then he fills each of those spheres. So, which, this is why, for example, the sun is day four and not day one. It's because they're making this, um, it's a literary point. Although, I'm a young earth creationist, I believe God did it this way. But, Um, don't get tripped up when you see the light before the sun. But the sun and the moon fill the sky. They fill the light and the dark. They fill the day and the night. The birds fill the air, and the fish fill the sea. So the waters above are filled with birds. The waters below are filled with fish. The land is filled with land creatures, and ultimately filled with man and woman. And then on the seventh day, God rests. So you have three days of forming, three days of filling, and this becomes the pattern that gets repeated um, in each of these creation episodes. So um, one thing that I'll mention, too, about the second day, about the the waters above and the waters below, in Hebrew cosmology, and this is really ancient cosmology for for people um, like ancient Near Eastern thought, there was something called the firmament, firmament firmament and that might actually I don't know if that's in the ESV I know it's in the King James version of uh, the creation account but the firmament is what divides the waters above from the waters below and so the sky and the reason the sky is blue is because there's water above there this is this is how they're describing the the way the world works now, this is not a scientific explanation of the world. They're, it's an observational explanation of the world. So um, they're, they're not suggesting, for example, that there's actually a sea up there that is being held back by a glass orb or something like that. This is, a lot of times we can think of ancient people as being like, dumber than us, but uh, they, they had a sense of what was going on. But this is their experience of the Earth. And so they talked about the firmament above, and that divided the waters above from the waters below. Now, you have this creation account in Genesis one and two, and, in, and then in Genesis three, it's punctuated by the fall. So you have six days of creation, you have a period of rest, and then you have a fall. And this pattern of creation, rest, fall gets repeated over and over again throughout the Torah. So any questions about that structure at this point? The general outline of that. Okay. Let's go to Genesis 7. And we're going to talk about Noah. There's some smaller vignettes of this, of this creation thing between um, Genesis 1 and Genesis 6 with Noah. But Noah's the first big one. Because there's a new covenant. We talked about covenant theology last week. There's a new covenant that gets inaugurated in um, the story of Noah. So you're familiar with the story. Noah is the last righteous man on earth, and God determines to destroy the earth, but he says, I'm going to save Noah. I'm going to tell him to build an ark, and we're going to take them through, um, we're going to save him through this, this flood. Now, you'll notice the way that God does the flood. It talks about, in Genesis, um, let's look at chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. So, this gets back to the firmament thing, right? So, for the Hebrews, in the sky, there was this separator. And when it rains, the idea was that the gods were opening their windows. So you're probably familiar with Baal and um, makes lots of, lots of appearances in Judges and Samuel and Kings. Baal is this Canaanite god and the story of Baal is that he actually lives in a mansion in the sky and he's the thunder god and when it rains, he's opened his windows. And so this language is being used to describe what's happening but ultimately, what God is doing in the destruction of the world there is he's undoing creation, right? So creation, when he's creating, puts this firmament up there. He divides the earth or the, the waters above from the waters below. But when he destroys the earth, he removes it. And so in the forming stage of creation, he does all these divisions and that's actually kind of what's what happening with the man and the woman, right? You have the sun, the moon, the land, the sea, the waters above, the waters below, and then the man and the woman. But he makes all these divisions, and then in the destruction of the world, he collapses those divisions. The same thing is what he's doing kind of obviously when he um, destroys the earth is he's unfilling it. He's emptying it out of all the sin and all the people and all the creatures. So <clears throat> the story of Noah is a story of a new creation right? And so when you go from Adam Adam falls, the earth falls apart and then God is essentially starting completely over with Noah now if we look at the way the flood subsides and the way that Noah comes out of the flood we see a redoing of the creation account so I've got this laid out here on on your chart but I can only find four of the six days in the Noah account. If you can find the first and the fourth day, let me know. But um, I think they're at least implied. So the first day would be light divided from the dark. Um, I imagine it would have been very dark when it was raining and storming. And so when it stopped raining, it would have gotten light again. And then when the clouds were removed, you could see the sun and the moon again. So those, those might be implied in the story, but they're not explicit. The other four days, the days two, days three, um, five, and six are all explicitly there. So if you look at chapter eight, verse two, it says, let's start in verse one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. So maybe that's the first day. I don't know. But I know this is the second day. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. And the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. So the firmament between heaven and earth was removed to flood the earth with rain. And then God closed the windows. And the firmament was reestablished. So that's day two happening again in the story of Noah. And then what happens? The water recedes. So pick up in verse 3. The waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So this is day, day four, or day three, right? So, day three of creation, God brings land out of the water. And here in the Noah story, we see land coming out of the water, right? The tops of the mountains are peeking out of the water. And the land is dividing the sea. So, again, I don't really see day four here. Maybe it's implied. But in verse six, we pick up with day five. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, And sent forth a raven, and went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to the ark. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So Noah's sending out these birds, right? And so this is, again... Day five happening again. God releases birds into the sky. No releases birds into the sky. And also, we find vegetation here. So, vegetation is included with the land, but the dove brings back an olive leaf. So, firmament's closed. The land divides the sea. The birds are back in the air. Um, I doubt that the sea creatures ever, they seem to, they probably thrived in this watery environment. But, um, and then, After this dove doesn't return in verse 12, they leave the ark. So verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with, with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. They may swarm upon the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So the birds are in the air. The sea creatures are in the water. The ark lands. They open the doors. The animals come out. And included with the animals coming out are man and woman. So Adam, it is kind of re reestablished here. Noah is the new Adam. So, this all gets wrapped up with the Noahic covenant. So, you'll you'll catch that there's some some of the language from Genesis 2 is being used here. Be fruitful and multiply. And then God makes a new covenant with Noah. Starting in verse um, 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So this is God establishing a covenant with all the earth, not just with Noah. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so, as you're aware, he puts the rainbow in the sky as a sign of the covenant, as a sign of peace. But this covenant is peace and rest, right? We don't have to worry about being destroyed by a flood again. And so you have these six days of recreation. God brings out man onto the earth again, and he gives him a covenant of peace and a covenant of life in the same way that Adam received a covenant of life, that he would have eternal life. But Noah's is not as, as good because he doesn't have eternal life, but he has peace on the earth. And so there's Sabbath rest. But we know what comes next in the pattern, right? All of these creations are punctuated with falls. So they come out of the the, um, ark, and then um, it tells the story of Noah after that. In verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So you'll remember that the sin of Adam and Eve is that they went and they ate the fruit of the tree. But Noah's sin, in a lot of ways, is more mature. Kind of literally, I guess. So he, he eats a fruit too, right? But it's a fruit that he's picked off the tree and fermented. And, and Noah's sin, in that way, is greater because it's a more grown-up sin. And so rather than Noah being this, this great um, reconciler of the world by being a new perfect man, he actually commits a more complex sin than Adam did. And this is a, a pattern where the, the theme of wine reappears throughout the Bible as either a, a big blessing or a big curse. Because in order to drink wine, you have to be mature, right? You have to be wise. And that's, the warnings in Proverbs are all about this. They talk about wine as a good thing and wine as a bad thing. Because wine is a blessing from God. It's a sign that God has blessed you. And in fact, that's why communion has wine in it. But also, if we abuse that, then it's a problem. So, so Noah is supposed to be this, this more mature, better Adam. God is blessing him with wine. And instead of handling that properly, he abuses it. Now, what exactly is going on with um, the nakedness thing? There's a bunch of different theories. But in any event, there's something inappropriate about how um, Ham has handled this, this whole situation. And certainly Noah's sin ultimately is that he um, got drunk and really put his sons in the situation of having to cover him up, right? So we have this creation account in Genesis 1 that lays the stage for us, and then it's redone in Genesis 7 through 9. Does that make sense? Is everybody following that? Okay. Now, there's there's something about uh, part of part of a covenant is this calling out and laying claim thing. This is I'm going off script here, so there's no notes on this. But so you see these creation accounts recur over and over with Abraham with Joseph. But part of what God does in all of these is He calls out and establishes covenant with some covenant head. So with Abraham. Um, with Joseph in some ways, although there's no covenant with Joseph. But as you're reading through Genesis, be looking for these creation accounts, be looking for the forming and filling specifically, right? Because that, that's the, the meta structure where every all these six days fit in. And so you'll see even with Noah, we don't find all six days, but the same structure of forming and filling happens. And you see those creation themes of division versus chaos and confusion and, and mixing of things. And filling and emptying, right? So those those meta themes, those bigger themes, will kind of control and and help us catch at least whispers of creation throughout um, Genesis and the rest of the Bible. Okay. Any questions about that? Well now let's go to Exodus. And we're gonna go to Exodus 25. <clears throat> <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> that's true. Um, well, that's part of that, too, is the covenant headship thing, right? So, um, and one of the things that happens in Genesis. You're going to get me off on this, but I'm going to, I'm going to go here. <laughs> so so there's a, Genesis 10 is about um, the lines of Noah. So you have Japheth. And it's interesting that you know Ham is not really a big deal. It's his son Canaan that's the big deal. Um, I'm not really sure why that's the case. There's certainly some... Um, the Canaanites were a big deal in the Old Testament, so there's certainly some of that going on. But Genesis 10 ends with Shem. Now, Shem's name literally is name. So that's the word Shem is name. And so God applies the name to Noah's family and specifically to Shem. We get to Genesis 11. Let's let's just read Genesis 11 here. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So there, this is actually kind of out of order, what's happening with Genesis 10 and 11. They're, it's not in chronological order. But the reason for that is because... Moses is trying to draw a distinction between the Shem that God gives to the people on earth and the Shem, the name that they want for themselves. And in fact, you know, this is something that Martin Luther goes off on in his commentaries on Genesis, but Martin Luther thinks that Shem is like involved in everything. Because if you think about the, the chronology here, Shem would have been alive when Abram was called by God. And so Martin Luther, I, this could be true, this could not be true, but... Martin Luther thinks that Shem actually probably was advising and involved in Abraham's life in some way. And that Shem was, as, as this person identified by God as like a, a covenant head, was probably a very important person in the ancient Near East when Abram was, you know, wandering around. So I don't know how much stock to put in that. If, if You can look up Martin Luther, talk on that if you want. It's all available online. But... Um, Shem is is very important because it's it's drawing this distinction between the line that God establishes and the line that man tries to establish, which goes back all the way to Genesis 3.15 when there's the the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and they're competing, right? So God is constantly identifying, this is my line, this is my seed, these are my people, and our response is always rebellion. We don't want to be God's people, we don't want to be God's seed. And God eventually gives us Christ, who's the ultimate seed of um, the woman. So... That's a that's a tangent, but it's a fun tangent. So, <laughs> this is Genesis one through eleven are some of the most important books, in, important chapters in the Bible, because they're setting the stage for everything that goes after. And if you can understand those those chapters, it makes everything else make a lot more sense. So, I could talk about that all day, but let's go to Exodus twenty five. <clears throat> So Exodus is one of these books, I, you know, we joke that we run out of steam in Leviticus when we're reading the Bible. I find that, you know, Exodus can be a little bit dense, too. Once you get past all the story in Exodus, you, you're, you're hitting some um, regulations for the tabernacle. <clears throat> so what I want to, what I hope to do tonight um, with Exodus 25 through 32 is draw your attention to some things going on in these chapters that's describing the construction of the tabernacle to kind of help you illuminate, help, help you understand um, some details about what's, what's going on. And I, I think that the more you understand these structures and themes that are, that are appearing here, the easier it is to, to read through these and, and dig deeper. So Genesis 25, I mean Exodus 25 occurs, the Ten Commandments happen in, in Genesis 20. And then uh, the book of the covenant is Genesis 21 through 23. And then in, Gen- in I keep saying Genesis, in Exodus 24, they had this covenant ceremony. So, um, Exodus 24, verse 3, look at this. Moses came and told the people all the words, of the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this is the covenant ceremony, right? And if we remember, we have to be thinking in terms of covenant, what covenant are we involved in? The covenant of Moses has already been inaugurated here. And so the, the main thing about the, the covenant law is in the Ten Commandments up to the, to the end of 23. And everything after that is, is additional that is explanation and um, for the clarification of what's actually happening in those central things which are in 20 through 23 so that's the context we're, in. we're already in the Mosaic covenant when God gives these commandments so by the way if you want to do a study on this there's, there's kind of four big things that happen here in uh, Exodus 24 the law gets read the people agree to it a sacrifice is made, and there's a sprinkling with blood. That, like, pattern reappears in First Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1, 2. So if you want to study that later, you can. But um, I won't go into that right now. But that's a covenant pattern that, that gets repeated in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. But so what, when we get to Exodus 25, Moses has gone up back to Mount Sinai, and he's receiving this from the Lord. Now, we don't have time to read all this because it's several chapters, but we start off with contributions for the sanctuary. So Moses is supposed to go to the people of Israel, and he's supposed to receive basically a love offering, however your heart moves you is what it says, um, of all of the materials for the tabernacle. So gold, silver, bronze, um, all sorts of linen and yarn, um, goat's hair, which um, doesn't sound very nice, but It's used, Um, all sorts of skins, oil, spices, jewels, all this stuff. And so we end up with this formless pile of stuff, right? So it's raw materials that they're working with to build the tabernacle. The first thing they build is the ark. And so the ark is two cubits and a half long, which a cubit is 18 inches, so it's seven and a half feet long. Somebody can check my math on that. And a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half tall. And so it's overlaid with gold. Um, it's covered in gold and it's carried with poles. So there's rings and you stick poles through it and that's how you carry it. Which, by the way, is part of the problem when you get to First um, Kings, or this is 2 Samuel, when David is trying to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. They're carrying it on a like a wagon. And so that's part of the problem with what's going on in that situation and why the the ark has to go away for 3 months. But so it's supposed to be carried verse 17 there's a mercy seat on top. So let's let's read that. Verse 17 you shall make a you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. 2 cubits and a half will be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim one end and one cherubim the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And this goes on top of the ark. Now, um, the mercy seat... We can't go into too much detail on this, but um, what this is is God's throne. That's what If you, if you look at the, the, the descriptions of God's throne, for example, in Isaiah 6 is a good one. There's one in Exodus that's a little different for a variety of reasons. But God is, like, carried around by cherubim, right? And so this is God's throne. That's why there's cherubim there. It's also interesting that what's the second commandment? Do you guys know off the top of your head? No images, no idols. So it's interesting that there's cherubim here. God is actually telling them to make images of a created thing. So um, do with that what you will. But so the ark represents heaven. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The ark is a place where God dwells. He sits on top of the, the ark as his throne. In front of the ark, there's a table. Verse 23 You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit shall be its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You overlay this with pure gold, and make a molding of gold around it. Make a rim at hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make four four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners on all four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall be, as holders for poles to carry the table. So, interestingly, not just the ark gets carried with poles, but... The table for the showbread does as well, and you make plates and dishes for incense, its flagons and bowls with which you to pour drink offerings. You shall make them pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now, some commentators disagree about this. There's there's some debate about this, but the basic idea is that the ark represents heaven, and the table represents earth. God is sitting on the ark, and he's presiding over. The earth. So when God creates, he creates the heavens and the earth. And the ark and the table represent those things. The next thing that gets made is the lampstand. Verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered works. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Now you also notice that there's a lot of this stuff where where they're saying this is all one piece, right? Which makes the construction of it very complicated. Can you imagine building... A, it's a menorah, so it's got seven can, candlesticks on it, right? And it's very tall and all this stuff. It's made of gold. Can you imagine building that out of one piece with all this ornate you know, stuff on it? So, uh, verse 32, there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches on the other, and three cl- cups made like almond blossoms. So, the the word for almond in Hebrew, I can't remember what the actual word is, but it's very similar to the word for watching. So, Aaron's staff, his priestly staff, has an almond bud on it, because he's watching over the people, and God is watching them. When you go to Isaiah, part of Isaiah's call is that he sees an almond tree. That's because God is watching him, and he's called to watch over the people. And so, This lampstand represents, in some way, watching, but, and I'm not going to ask this question because it's on on your paper, but it also represents God creating light, right? But there's no sun yet. We'll we'll get to that later. This is just the representation of light. But you'll see, as we get into this tabernacle, all of this stuff is very ornate. It's got lots of flowers and things like that. What do you think that's that's referencing? What's that supposed to evoke? garden right so there's this development though remember how we talked about the fruit that adam and eve ate was unfermented versus the maturity that noah had as he developed there's there's a growth and maturity here because the garden came up on its own and god created that but then god is giving this back to people and saying now you create a garden for me and he's he's relying on craftsmen to do this So this lampstand, there'll be four cups made like almond blossoms. This is verse 34, with their calyxes and flowers. And the calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. So all these flowers are kind of flowing down the, the lampstand. There'll be one piece, a whole single piece with pure gold, and it's got seven lamps. And This is 37B. And the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. So, again, the purpose of the lamp is to provide light. Now, that's day one. We have the the heavens and the earth are made, the altar and the table. And then God says, let there be light by way of the lampstand. The next thing is, this is the whole of chapter 26, which is focused on the building of the tabernacle itself. And the tabernacle was made of these curtains. It had a goat skin tent over the top of it. And it had linen curtains all the way around made of purple and blue. So if we can, we can zoom in <clears throat> on verses 31 through 35 here. So there's, there's several different layers of, of everything with the tabernacle. Again, remember there's... If you're familiar with kind of the temple complex, you kind of go in deeper and deeper and there's more and more layers. But verse 31 of chapter 26. You shall make a veil of blue and purple... And scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. That's probably very hard to do, by the way. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. You shall hang, from, hang the veil from clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You shall set the table outside the veil. And the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. So, remember the firmament. The firmament divides the waters above from the waters below. God says, put a a curtain between the altar, which represents heaven, and the table, which represents earth. So this curtain divides heaven and earth, divides the waters above from the waters below, right? Now, what happens when Jesus dies to the curtain between the the holy place and the most holy place? Rips in two. What do you make of that? Are there any thoughts on why that might be the case? There's a division between heaven and earth with this curtain. And Jesus rips open the division between heaven and earth. When that happens for Noah, that's a sign of judgment. When the firmament's opened in the Noah story, that's a bad thing. But through Christ, when the firmament is opened, it's a sign of mercy. Because no longer when we open the firmament are we coming to judgment, we're coming to the mercy seat. That's what's inside the Holy of Holies when you, when you tear open the curtain. And so, this tabernacle curtain is, is representing the distance between God and man, but Christ ultimately is going to divide that distance finally and we're, we're still in the forming phase here of the creation of the earth the altar and the court are established in uh, chapter 27 <clears throat> so there's this altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad, the altar shall be um, square and its height shall be three cubits you shall make horns for it in all, all four corners its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Now, this is something that Jewish commentators will point out a lot. What happens when bronze patinas? What color does it turn? Hmm? Green. What, what did you say? Yeah, well, so, so green, right? So this is representing the land, right? There's grass, there's vegetation coming up out of the altar, right? and they're burning the animals on top of the altar. Now, around the altar, so this is where I should given you a picture, but you have the Holy of Holies. There's a tent around that. and Then there's an outer court. The altar is in this outer court. And then God describes the outer court uh, starting in verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen 100 cubits long for one side, there's 20 pillars, and the 20 bases shall be bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets will be of silver. <clears throat> so for reference, 100 cubits is about 150 feet. So um, we're dealing with, this thing is 50 yards long, basically, is what they're saying. Which sounds big, but if you're trying to have a worship service with the entire nation of Israel, and if you're killing bulls in a place that's like the quarter, a quarter of the size of a football field, basically, um, it's probably a bloody, loud, gross mess in there. Um, so I don't know what that says about the creation thing that we're going for here, but that's just interesting because we think of that as really huge, but it's, it's actually not as big as we, we might think. But the court of the tabernacle is what separates this symbol of land, the altar, from the rest of the world. So you have the altar in the middle. You have this division with the court of the tabernacle and everything else outside is like the waters, because in the Bible, whenever you see water, it's a symbol of chaos. Um, the Hebrews were not a seafaring people. They didn't like ships. Um, in fact, they don't even have a word for sailor. So the book of Jonah is really interesting because they don't have all the, like, these nautical terms. They don't have any of those. So when you see the word sailor in Jonah, the, the literal Hebrew is salty boys is, <laughs> is what the, the literal Hebrew is. Um, so they really don't like water because water is a sign of chaos, water is a sign of judgment, and we want to be free from uh, the sea. That's why when you get to Revelation and you see the description of the new heavens and the new earth, what's not there? A sea. There are rivers because rivers are signs of life, but the sea is a sign of chaos and death. So fresh water is good, salt water is bad. Um, fresh water, rivers, running water is good, stagnant water Deep water is bad. So everything else outside of the tabernacle court is this chaotic, oceany world. And then the court, you have the land in the middle. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the forming stage, right? God, we form the place for God to be. We form the earth, the heavens and the earth, and in the holy place with the ark and the table. Then the tabernacle curtains are dividing the waters above from the waters below. And then the altar is the land that appears and is divided from the chaotic waters outside. So you'll see that this is not a one-to-one correlation with Genesis, but um, the themes are reappearing, which is is what we're principally looking at. Now, we've formed all these places. It's time to fill them. So the next thing you see in Exodus 27 verse 20 is oil for the lamp. You, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. <coughs> so God says, build this lamp, build this lampstand. But in the lampstand, there's no oil. So, because that's all in the forming stage, and then this is the inauguration of the filling stage, they add oil to the lamps. Chapter 28, we get a lengthy description of the priestly garments. I'll paint a couple things for you here. But what does does that mirror? It mirrors the birds and, and the fish, primarily The birds because these garments are long and flowing, right? You're probably familiar with um, the phrase from Isaiah that the Messiah comes with healing in his wings. Um, the corners of these priestly robes are called tzitzi. That means wings. And so this, there's a bird theme going on in these priestly garments. A couple of things to uh, point out about the garments. If you look in verse 12, it says, you shall set two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance so he has these two two stones that are representing Israel and he, he puts them on his shoulders why is it significant that they're on his shoulders and not somewhere else what does it mean if you're carrying something on your shoulders you're bearing the weight You're bearing the—you're holding it up, right? And so Jesus is our great high priest. He has the names of us on his shoulders, and he bears them before God. The names are also born, verse 29, in the breastplate, on the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. And he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So Hebrews describes Jesus as our great high priest— and Jesus comes before God with us on his shoulders and in his heart to bring us to our remembrance before him. Right? He bears our sins, and then he brings our needs to God. So that's what's going on with Aaron here. He's got these stones that symbolize the people, and he brings the people's sins before God to atone for them, but he brings their requests and petitions before them as well. Um, you'll also notice that this is all blue and purple. It's very bright colors Um, It's also not, there's no seams on the robes. Um, There's just like, basically the robes are a a big sheet with a hole cut in the top. (laughs) Um, And so that becomes significant later. We won't go into all that um, today, but um, you can look at that on your own if you want. Um, Next, and we need to move quickly, the ordination of priests happen, right? So in chapter 29, God tells Moses, this is what you shall do to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And so he does these sacrifices and he touches them with blood and he gives them the holy crown and the anointing. So all of these things are establishing a priesthood to serve in the tabernacle. Now remember Adam? What, is, what does he represent in the garden? A priest? Noah represents a new Adam and a new priest. And so these are real priests and this is kind of the locust of the priesthood theme that goes back and forth. Um, so this is like the creation of man all over again. Man is, is placed in the tabernacle to work and to keep it. That's Remember, that's priestly language from Genesis. That's used to describe what the priests are supposed to do in the tabernacle. Work and keep. Now, what goes on from chapter 29, verse 10, all the way up to 31, 18, is a description of the daily worship. And so, this is the seventh day, right? We're worshiping continually. And the, the ultimate description here happens in chapter 31, verse 12, when God actually lays down, like, this is the Sabbath. He says to Moses in verse 12, or verse 13, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you, and everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. So this is very serious. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. So we've just gone through this, this six-day cycle in chapters 25 through 30, And now you can probably see why the Sabbath instructions happen here. Because a work of six days has just happened, and a Sabbath has just been established. And so, just like that happens in Genesis 1, uh, just like that happens in Exodus 20, it happens here again. Six days are established, and on the seventh day, God establishes a Sabbath. Um, We don't have much time to talk about the golden calf, but what happens after creation? There's a fall. And in this case, it's the golden calf. So God creates for six days. He describes the tabernacle, describes the forming and filling of it. He describes this new Sabbath of continual worship. And then the people build a golden calf. And so Moses comes down from the mountain, or he's delayed from coming down from the mountain. And Aaron lets the people build this Baal idol. It's, it, is, it is Baal. <laughs> and they say that... This is the priests say to um, the people in verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So who is the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt? It's God. That's the grounding for all of these laws. If you go look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the, the reason we obey the Ten Commandments is because God brought the people out of Egypt. I, the Lord, the one who brought you out of Egypt. And in Exodus 32, they say, That's who brought us out of Egypt, this Baal God. But this is, I don't know if this is funny or not, but in verse 7, God turns it totally around on Moses. And God says, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. So God is distancing himself from the people because they've fallen, they've fallen into sin, and he's he's put it on Moses. Because Moses is the covenant head of these people, right? He's He's their prophet and their priest. And so. Um, They say, well, those are the gods brought us out of Egypt. And God says, no, Moses brought you out of Egypt. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, But there's a covenant renewal. They're brought back into covenant. Um, God, Moses intercedes for the people. Moses makes new tablets because, you remember, he came down and broke the tablets on the ground because he was mad. But the covenant is renewed. And the people are brought back into covenant with God. But it's, it's kind of interesting. One of the first things that God says after he renews the covenant, it's like talking to a child. You know, you give them rules and then they break one of the rules and you say, okay, here's a more specific rule. <laughs> right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail it down and give you all the details. Leave no room for questions. He says, you shall not, this is Exodus thirty four seventeen. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. So the thing you just did, don't do that. <laughs> and there's a new covenant established. And you'll have another creation cycle starting here in chapter 34 with a new covenant renewed. So there's a covenant ceremony in Exodus 24. You have six days of creation, Sabbath, fall. Then the covenant is renewed in Exodus 34. And we're going to talk about this next week. But you'll have six days of creation, a Sabbath, and a fall with Nadab and Abihu. So does that make sense for everybody? Any questions, comments, concerns? So this is one of the most fun things for me because... When you start seeing these things, it's like everything is in color all of a sudden instead of black and white, and so um, it's a lot of fun. So, but we need to go, so I'm going to pray. And um, if you have any questions, let me know. Father, thank you uh, for your tabernacle and for calling us to be your people, to be your new tabernacle, to be your new temple, to be the body of Christ. Father, would you teach us through these things, through these signs and symbols that you've established? Would you teach us to, to see Christ in them and to see the work that you've done in our lives through them, to see that you've made a new creation in us and a new man that you've created in us, calling your church as a people, you've created us to be a new creation, to live in a new, renewed world by the glory of the gospel. Father, thank you that you gave your son to, to, to tear down the curtain that divided us from you and from your mercy. Father, would you pour out your mercy on us this week? as we reflect on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.